can have a seat. It's great to have you with us this Easter morning, especially if you're just visiting or new. We're really excited that you're worshiping with us today. For those of you who were here on Friday night when we gathered together and remembered Jesus' death and we had wooden crosses and hammered nails into them to remind ourselves of, of our sin and our complicity in the crucifixion of Jesus, our wonderful creative team took those crosses and replaced the nails with flowers. And there's one at each campus, but this is ours. And the, the idea behind that cross is to remind us that when Jesus rose from the dead, our sin was gone. In an instant, 2,000 years ago, your sin evaporated. It does not exist anymore. There's no drawer in God's home that he can open up and pull out your sin and show it to you. It's gone. It's replaced with life, forgiveness, joy, and peace. And we celebrate that today. Well, I want to tell you a story. About 80 years ago, there was a conference in England on religion. And experts all around the world gathered to discuss what was, if any, a unique belief within Christianity. What's one thing that we believe that no other religion does? And so they started thinking it all through and debating about it. And and one person suggested, well, perhaps the incarnation, God taking on human flesh. But others said, no, that, that there's actually multiple religions with that idea. Well, what about the resurrection, someone rising from the dead? No, actually, there, there's lots of stories of that in other religions. And so They debated around and around until a man walked in the room named C.S. Lewis, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, the kids' books, and many other books as well. And he asked, well, what in the world is all this rumpus about? And they explained, well, we're trying to figure out if there are any beliefs that are actually unique to Christianity. What is the one thing that sets Christianity apart? And he said, well, that's easy. It's grace. And they thought about it for a while and realized that's exactly right. The one thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion is the idea of grace. So what is grace? It's in the name of our church. Obviously, we care very much about it, but what does it actually mean? Turn to Matthew chapter 20. In Matthew 20, we're going to find a story told by Jesus. We call it a parable. It's a story from everyday life. Jesus is going to tell us a story about a man who owned a vineyard. A wealthy man who hired workers to come into his vineyard. And we're going to see what grace means by looking at how he treats them. So look at Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the 11th hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner saying, these last men have worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. 
But he answered and said to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. This is actually a very common story from the ancient world. This happened every day. So in the ancient world, there were lots of men who did not own land and did not have a steady job. And so they would wake up every morning and get to the marketplace as quick as they could out of hopes of being hired by wealthy landowners to do day labor. If you looked at at kind of the, the economic ladder of the ancient world, these guys were at the very bottom. They actually financially were worse off than slaves because slaves had a steady supply of food. These men did not. They were desperate for work. If they worked all day long, 12 hours, then the average or agreed upon wage was one denarius, which was a coin that would buy one family one day's worth of food. So literally these guys live from hand to mouth. I work today so my family can eat tomorrow. And if I don't work today, my family doesn't eat tomorrow. So they were desperate to be hired. So this is a very common story from the ancient world, but it's a very uncommon landowner. The guy who hires them does some strange things. The first is that he keeps going back into the market. All day long, he keeps going and hiring more guys. That's weird because this landowner represents God. So we know this isn't a failure to plan. He knew how many people he needed. He just keeps going back and hiring more. Why? We'll get to that in a little bit. The second and strangest thing, though, that this landowner does is he pays everyone the same full day's wage, no matter how long they worked. And that makes the guys hired first pretty angry. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we were in their shoes, we'd be a little angry too. Why? Because we like to be treated fair. Right? Human beings, what do we like above all else? Fairness. We want everyone to get exactly what everyone deserves. We expect the world to treat us fair, and what this landowner does is clearly not fair. And that's the first thing you learn about grace from this parable. Grace is not fair. Humans, what do we demand? We demand to be treated fairly by businesses. We expect the business to be fair to its customers and employees. We expect the government to be fair, treat everybody equal or or we'll protest. We expect and demand fairness in life. And that is why every single religion other than Christianity preaches fairness. Every other religion is built on the idea of getting what you deserve, on on being treated fairly. And so let's think for a moment. Judaism. Judaism preaches that you must obey the law. If you obey the law, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. You will get what you deserve. Islam, the five pillars. You must practice the five pillars to have a blessed life. If you do not, you will be cursed. Buddhism and Hinduism, they practice karma. That's the definition of fairness. Be good to people now and you'll be treated well in the future. You get what you deserve. Every religion on earth is predicated on the concept of fair. You get what you deserve, but this landowner is not fair. It's something that's very unfair. He gives everybody a full day's wage, including those who don't deserve it at all. 
The landowner is not fair. He is gracious. And the meaning of grace, contrary to fair, you get what you deserve. Grace means you get good you do not deserve. That's the landowner. He gives people good that they do not deserve. He is not fair. He is gracious. And I want you to notice this landowner, his grace is never less than fair. He doesn't cheat anyone. No one shortchanged. If, if let's draw a line, if this is fairness, grace is always above it. Grace only ever goes above fairness. So we can change our first point. First thing we learn about grace, it's better than fair. Always grace is better than fair. So let's think for a moment. If God was only ever fair to us, what would we get from him? Okay, well, let's, let's think for a moment. I, I hope we can all agree that we are sinners. Now, that's a, a very spiritual sounding word. All that means is we do things we know are wrong. We say things we know are wrong. We're selfish, we're prideful, we hurt other people, and we regret that. The Bible puts it this way in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None of us lives a perfect life. And, and the Bible tells us that, that there is a wage that that sin earns for us. It's described in the book of Ephesians. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Look at that list at the beginning. No immoral person, no impure person, no no covetous person. Covetous means you want something someone else has. Who of us has not committed covetousness? I do every day. Idolatry, that means you love something or someone more than God. Who hasn't fallen to that one? We have all committed these sins and the Bible is clear. The result is we all deserve punishment from God, what the Bible calls wrath. I know that's a hard truth. I know that offends people, but the Bible is clear. Our sin merits God's punishment. And so if God gave us what we deserve, we would all receive punishment from God. Here's what Philip Yancey concluded as he thought about that and read this parable that we just read. He thought about these guys. He said, many Christians who study this parable identify with the employees who put in a full day's work rather than the add-ons at the end of the day. Isn't that so true? You hear this parable, and maybe like you're a hard worker, you're working hard at school, you're taking a full class load, or maybe you're a man or a woman here who's, you've raised kids, you're working hard for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You read the parable and you feel like the first guys, right? I was hired, I've been putting in my dues, I've been working hard. Yancey goes on. We like to think of ourselves as responsible workers and the employer's strange behavior baffles us as it did the original hearers. We risk missing the story's point. That God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit. For none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements. His point is that the only person on earth who has ever been the first guy hired was Jesus. All of us, we're the last guys hired. We've fallen so far short of what God expects. It's only the first guy who keeps all of the boss's expectations. He puts in a full day's wage. He, he earns his denarius. Only Jesus did that. Every other human being who's ever lived, we are all the last guys hired. We haven't come close to living up to what God expects. And so when you think about what you want in life, you do not want a fair God. You want a gracious God. 
You want a God who gives you good you do not deserve because if God gives you what you get or gives you what you deserve, you will have punishment and wrath. Christianity is unique because it offers us grace rather than fairness. Your God is better than fair. He's gracious. And that's what gives you hope. That's the God of Christianity. The second thing we learn about God's grace in this parable is that it is offered to all. And this is really about the the strange thing that this landowner does, this, this vineyard owner, this wealthy man. He just keeps looking for more people to invite. And it's strange because, again, it's God. And so it's not a failure to plan. So why doesn't he just hire everybody he needs at the beginning and be done with it? Why does he keep going back looking for more and more people? Because this is a picture of the compassion of God. God doesn't want anyone left behind. God wants everyone to experience his grace in his kingdom. Here's how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 2. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Not all good people, right? All, all 107 billion people who have lived on this planet in the history of the human race, Jesus died for all of them. He took all of that sin, all of that punishment and died in all of our place. Why? Because God wants everyone saved. That's God's desire. He doesn't want anyone left out. The point is that there is always room for one more in the kingdom of God. So think about it. United Airlines had a really bad week this week, didn't they? <laughs> really bad week. What was the fundamental problem for United Airlines? Well, at the end of the day, there weren't enough seats. There weren't enough seats for all the people who wanted to be on that plane. So they needed to get four more people on, so they kicked four people off. There was a limit to their hospitality because there was a limit to the number of seats on the plane. God's kingdom doesn't work that way. There's no limited seating in heaven. God's kingdom is infinite. And so there's always room for one more. There's always room for another billion more. The gates of heaven are always open. The grace of God is limitless. God wants everyone to experience his grace, including you. There is always room in the kingdom of God for you. The third thing that we learn about God's grace in this story God's grace overcomes all our failures. I want you to put yourself in the shoes for a moment of the last guy hired. So 11th hours when he's hired, that means the workday is 12 hours long. So he has been sitting in the marketplace for 11 hours doing what? Nothing. Nothing, just sitting there. And how do you think he feels? Like he's playing with his iPad, just killing time. No, he would have felt incredibly ashamed and afraid. Why? Because he knows in one hour... I walk home. And what do I have to tell my wife? I didn't get hired today. I I didn't earn any money, so you and the kids and me, we don't eat tomorrow. Can you imagine how afraid and ashamed he felt of himself? Sit all day in the market and no one was willing to hire him. He's got nothing to show for himself. And then this strange guy shows up and hires him for one hour of work. That's weird. But okay, maybe I'll earn a few pennies now. Maybe I can at least earn a little bit of bread so I don't go home empty-handed. And then the day ends and the guy hands him a denarius, a full day's wage. All of a sudden that 11 
hours of waste is redeemed. It's gone. It's erased. It's like his whole day was profitable. That's grace. It erases all of the waste and all of the failure from our past. There is always enough grace from God to cover any sin and any failure in our past. And the proof of that is a man named Paul. He was known as Saul early in his life before he was a Christian. He talks about that in 1 Timothy 1. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Before Paul trusted in Jesus, he was a man named Saul who was a persecutor of the church. He chased down Christians, men, women, children. He imprisoned them and executed them. He was a murderer. In in our common um, society, we would think of him today as a terrorist. And yet God saves him and forgives him to prove to us there is no one who is so far gone they're beyond hope of the grace of God. The grace of God makes up and covers and erases all sin, limitless sin. I like to think of the grace of God like cinnamon. Okay, so cinnamon, powerful spice. Take a big old cup of coffee, drop a little cinnamon in it, you're going to taste it. Doesn't matter how much coffee there is in it. Actually, you can use cinnamon to cover any flavor you don't like. It's a little family secret in the Jennings household. When the kids need to eat something they don't like, we have a little bottle with a little cinnamon and a little sugar already pre-mixed. Just sprinkle a little of that. Boom. We're good. Kids will eat it. Why? Because cinnamon covers everything. A little goes a long way. That's grace. A little grace goes a long way. It'll cover whatever sin, whatever failures, whatever waste has been part of your life. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 5, 20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It's this beautiful wordplay. It should be framed up on your wall where grace or sin increased, grace increased all the more. It was super abundant. The idea is if you think about, about sin as like this rising swell of water, grace is always over the top of it. You will never out God's grace. That's the idea. It is inexhaustible. It wipes away all of your past failures and sins and struggles as if they never happened. So the grace of God, it overcomes all our failures. Fourth thing we learn about the grace of God, not from this passage, but from other passages. How do we get this grace of God in our lives? It's through faith. God's grace comes to all those who will simply believe. It's put this way in John 3.16. Perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible for good reason. This is really like, if you want to know what is Christianity preached, that's it. One verse. Write it on the wall, you're done. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, out of the whole human race, whosoever believes in him, should not perish but have everlasting life. If you believe in Jesus, you receive salvation as a free gift. That's grace. Grace comes into your life the moment you believe. Paul puts it this way in Acts 16. He's speaking to a Philippian man who's not yet a Christian. This man brings Paul and Silas out of prison and asks him, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do I have to do to get the grace of God in my life? And they reply, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it. All you must do is believe in Jesus and you get the grace of God. You don't have to work for it. I want to make that really clear to you. You do not have to earn God's love. 
You do not have to work for heaven. If you're here this morning because you thought it would earn you brownie points with God, that's not how God works. He's not looking for you to do stuff for him. He wants to do something for you. Grace is a gift you receive in faith. You don't have to work for it. All you must do is believe. So what does that mean to believe? What is faith? We talk about that all the time. We use this word faith. But what is it actually? I've talked to a lot of people about that over the years. A lot of people who are struggling with Christianity. What does it mean to believe? What is faith? And I I found that some people are kind of over on this side. And they assume that faith is like this blind leap with your eyes closed into the dark based on a feeling or an emotion. Man, you really feel like this probably isn't true. But gosh, I feel like I want it to be. And so I just jump. No, that's not faith. On the other hand, I speak to some people who have the complete opposite idea. They think faith is certainty. Like I have to be able to prove it before I can become a Christian. I have to have absolute scientific certainty before I can become a Christian. No, both of those are incorrect. What is faith? To believe means that you have become persuaded by the evidence that something is true. That's all it means. It's not certainty, but it's not a blind leap. You are persuaded by the evidence that something is true. Christianity is an evidence-based religion. God doesn't say, close your eyes and jump in the dark. He says, no, here's a ton of evidence in scripture, in history, in science, in creation. Tons of evidence for you to consider, to convince you, to persuade you that it's really true. I can't walk you through all the evidence this morning or 100 mornings. I couldn't take you through all of it. I want to focus on the most important evidence. The most important evidence God has given us for our faith is the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. The event that we're celebrating that happened 2,000 years ago. That's most important because if Jesus walked out of the tomb alive, which no one has ever done, then all of it's true. If he didn't walk out of the tomb alive, then you are wasting your time here this morning. So how do we know Jesus actually rose from the dead? There's a lot of evidence. I'm going to give you the top four reasons that have convinced me. Why do we know or why do we believe that Jesus rose from the dead? First one you're going to think is strange because women were the first witnesses. Now, before you think that your pastor is a bigot, let me explain what's going on here. Kind of seems like a trivial, uncomfortable fact. Women were the first witnesses. Here's why it matters. In the first century, women were not thought highly of. Not by Jews, not by Greeks, not by Romans. Actually, in a Jewish court of law, women were not allowed to testify because their testimony was not considered reliable. A man named Josephus was a Jewish historian from the first century, and he says that even the testimony of multiple women should be rejected, quote, because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Celsus, an ancient critic of Christianity, mocked the idea that Mary Magdalene was a witness of Jesus, uh, of Jesus' resurrection. He said, since like all women, she was, quote, his words, not mine, hysterical and deluded by sorcery. Okay, so here's the point. First century, Jewish, Greek, Roman society all had a very low view of women. They were chauvinists. They were bigoted. Now, to be clear, the Bible doesn't agree with that. From cover to cover, the Bible's clear. Women are co-heirs of the kingdom of God with men, our equals in every way. But here's why this little odd historical detail matters. Let's say they made it all up. 
if you were making up a religion, why would you choose as witnesses of your religion people whom your world said are unreliable? You wouldn't write a story with women as the first witnesses. You'd never do that because your society would think that's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. You would not list witnesses whom society said are unreliable. It would be like me trying to convince you to buy a bad investment. I'm trying to fool you into giving me some money. And so I'm going to tell you about this hot stock tip I have because I'm going to try to take your money from you. If I'm trying to convince you to give me your money, I'm not going to tell you, hey, I got this amazing stock tip. Um, It's guaranteed to give you money. I heard about it from my seven-year-old. I'm not going to say that. Why? Because no one looks to seven-year-olds as reliable gauges of a stock's price. That, we don't do that. What am I going to do? I'm going to tell you, I read about it in the Wall Street Journal, or I heard about it from William Buffett. I'm, I'm going to tell you a, a source that you are going to say, wow, that is a great name drop. That is a great source. That's reliable. I'm not going to tell you it was my seven-year-old, just like if you were making this whole religion up, your first and primary witnesses wouldn't be women. What is the only reasonable explanation for the fact that all four Gospels say women are the first and primary witnesses of Jesus' resurrection? Must have been true. They're simply recording the facts and all of their embarrassing details. It's the first reason we believe Jesus rose from the dead is because the Bible is clear. Women were the first witnesses. Second reason we believe it's true is that because the apostles, the guys who actually wrote this story, look foolish in this story. Again, hypothetical, you're making up a religion. You want people to follow you and think you're pretty cool. So you're going to write this religion and you're going to fabricate the stories. Don't you think you're going to make yourself look good in the stories? Kind of seems to go without saying. Of course, you want people to like. So you're going to make yourself look good. So we would expect that if the apostles were making all of this up, they would make themselves look good in it. And that is certainly what you see in ancient literature. When someone is making up a mythology, they make themselves look good in it. And yet in this book, the apostles, the writers, don't look very good. Let's just take Peter, for example. He was the leader of the church. So if any guy had the authority to actually make up this story in a way that made himself look good, you would expect that Peter would come out of this story looking pretty great, and yet he doesn't. Matthew chapter 16, a passage we looked at earlier this semester. Peter and Jesus have a little bit of a confrontation. Peter tells Jesus that Jesus is wrong about some stuff. And here's what Jesus says to Peter. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Like that's the worst thing in Christianity. You can call someone Satan. I mean, why would Peter fabricate this story that makes himself look so bad? Here's another one. Happened the night Jesus was betrayed when he was arrested. Here's what happened with Peter. Matthew chapter 26. Now, Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl, not a soldier, not a big brawny dude with a spear or a sword, but a little servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And another servant girl, still not a soldier with a a shield and a sword. No, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. 
and immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter looks like a coward here. He cowers before a little servant girl and denies Jesus and breaks down crying and runs off into the woods. If you were making it all up, why would you include that? Peter's the guy who put that story in there. It started with him. He's the one telling you the story. Why would you allow such an embarrassing thing about yourself into a religion you made up? The only reasonable explanation is he didn't make it up. He really was a coward. And he so wants you to know the truth about Jesus that he is willing to tell you what happened in all of its embarrassing details so you will know this is real. Third reason why we believe Jesus rose from the dead, his enemies never brought out his body. In Acts chapter 4, we're told that the entire city of Jerusalem was in a frenzy over the apostles' claim that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. 5,000 people joined the church in, in that just those few weeks after Jesus, very short amount of time. We actually know from, from secular scholars who don't even believe the Bible that indeed this rumor about Jesus, this idea about Jesus was catching on like wildfire and lots of people are joining the church and that terrified the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Because a few weeks earlier, they had crucified Jesus to try to stop his movement so they could hold on to the reins of power. They were jealous of Jesus. They wanted to stay in control. All of a sudden, it feels like power is slipping back through their fingers. They're losing Jerusalem. They need to stop Christianity in its tracks. And so what would be the easiest thing for them to do? Get the body. Everybody knew where it was. Everyone knew what he looked like. They had all, whole city had seen Jesus hanging up on a cross. It had only been a few weeks, so his body would be completely recognizable. Just go roll the stone back, take the body out, put it on, on a, a, a pad, and just walk it through Jerusalem. Okay, just put it in a wheelbarrow. Just walk it through Jerusalem so everyone can see, and boom, Christianity stopped in its tracks. And that's the one thing they never do. They never produce the body. They will arrest and beat and torture and kill Christians, but they will never bring out the body. Why? The only reasonable explanation is there was no body. They could, the tomb was empty. They could not bring out the body. And what's fascinating is even most non-Christian scholars agree with that historical evidence. Yeah, the religious leaders clearly hated Jesus. We all believe that. They w- could have just brought out the body. They didn't. What's the only reasonable explanation? The body wasn't in the tomb. But these non-Christian scholars, they have an answer ready for you, an explanation ready. They will say, well, the apostles stole the body so they could make up this religion. Well, that makes some sense until you think. What did all of these apostles get for their trouble? What did they get in life for making up this thing called Christianity? Well, they all died for it. They were imprisoned, they were tortured, and 11 of the 12 were executed for this choice to tell the world that Jesus rose from the dead. Here is a non-exhaustive list, just a few examples. Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are flogged, beaten to a pulp. Acts 12, James, one of the disciples, is beheaded. Acts 14, Paul is stoned, literally hit with stones until they thought he was dead and then by miracle he comes back. Acts 16, Paul is beaten with rods. After 2 Peter, Peter was crucified upside down, which I cannot fathom how painful that would be. After 2 Timothy, Paul is beheaded. 
And so the logical question that you have to ask yourself is why would all of these men suffer and die for something they knew was a lie? It doesn't make any sense. If you're Peter and you made it up and you see the soldiers coming to crucify you and what are you going to say in that moment? Fellas, hold on a second. There has been a little mistake. Um, I made up that whole story about Jesus rising from the dead because I thought it'd make me popular and clearly it has not. So can we just forget about this? I recant. Let's get right. No, none of them do that. All of them stay loyal to Jesus and continue to proclaim that they saw him risen from the dead even as they are arrested, beaten, tortured, and executed. There is no reasonable explanation for that historically verifiable fact other than that Jesus really rose from the dead. There's a lot more evidence. If you're a skeptic, if you just find it too hard to believe, I would encourage you to study the evidence. As Christians, we are not afraid of the facts. Get into, this, get into the history, study the evidence. I've written out a lot more reasons to, to believe that Jesus really rose from the dead. It's on our website. If you go to our website, click resources, frequently asked questions, you'll find a paper titled, Why We Believe Jesus Rose from the Dead. Download that paper, read it, study the evidence, and then I would invite you, actually, I, I would plead with you to come talk to me or send me an email. My favorite thing to do in the entire world is to talk to non-Christians who are wrestling with the evidence. You will not offend me. I promise you, you can't offend me on any of this. You, go, you won't anger me. Come talk to me. Write me a letter. Send me an email. Call me on the phone. Whatever it takes. Let's talk about the evidence. Your doubts won't surprise me or terrify me. I'd love to talk with you about the incredible mountain of evidence we have that Jesus really did rise from the dead 2,000 years ago meaning that whole book is true. God has given us a ton of evidence and the grace of God comes into our lives the moment that we are persuaded that the evidence is true. You are saved by faith alone. So grace of God comes into your life by faith alone. You don't have to work for it. That reality does tend to offend some people. It, it can cause concern. Gosh, aren't, aren't we making grace cheap? We're offering grace for free. All you got to do is believe. Doesn't that make it cheap? Aren't people going to abuse it and take it for granted? Let me just be absolutely clear to, to, to tidy that up. Okay, if you think grace is being offered cheap. Grace is free for us, but it is not cheap. Actually, grace is the most expensive thing ever purchased in the history of the human race, but you didn't have to pay for it. That's the fifth and final thing that you need to understand about God's grace. It was purchased for you by Jesus. It is not cheap. It cost the life of the creator of the universe. He suffered and died. And when he was on the cross, he took upon himself the sin and the punishment for every human being who's ever lived, which means at least 107 billion people's sin sat on the savior on the cross and he died for it all. There has never been a higher price paid for anything in the history of the human race. So grace is not cheap. It is unfathomably expensive, but Jesus paid it all so that you could have it for free. That is the good news of the gospel. 
God loves you so much that he took on human flesh, lived the perfect life you could not live, took your sin and punishment upon his back, died in your place, and then rose from the dead, earning life for you so that he could give you forgiveness and life and entrance into the family of God for all eternity as an absolutely free gift. And all you must do is say yes. You don't have to work for it anymore. You don't have to come to church ever again to earn anything from God. It is a free gift for you. All you need to do is say Yes, I want that God. I believe your son Jesus earned it for me when he died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. That's what earned eternal life for me forever. I don't have to work for your love. You give it to me for free. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are a God of grace. You are not a God of works or of merit. You are not a fair God and we praise you for that. You are so much better than fair. You are gracious. You give good to those who don't deserve it, who will never deserve it. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you gave your life so that we could have that grace. You lived the perfect life we could not live and you offer that righteousness, that obedience to us for free and and you took all of our sin, all of our evil upon yourself. You did that for free. You did that so that you could die in our place and then you rose from the dead to conquer sin and death and Satan so that we could have victory forever. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died and rose for us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for that good news and right now we pray For any person in this room who is struggling to believe that, maybe it sounds too good to be true. Maybe the idea of the Son of God taking on human flesh and dying and rising from the dead just seems too ridiculous to believe. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would shine through the darkness, that you would show them the evidence, that you would soften their hearts, that you would help them to see that the most reasonable explanation for the history of the human race is that Jesus actually rose from the dead, that it is all true, and that we have hope and life as a free gift we don't have to work for. We pray, Heavenly Father, that this would be the day of their salvation. We praise you and we thank you that you love us so much you sent your son. It is for his glory, honor, and fame we say, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great Easter.